This world in which we live is so horribly sin-sick. There is a description or a, depi a depiction that we tried to put together with, with our human words that tried to describe the state in which our entire world finds itself. I think it would be very difficult. I think it would be hard to come up with words that we can put together because I think sometimes not even words can really help us comprehend how far and how deep our world has fallen away from Almighty God. I do think Isaiah taps into a little bit of this. If you think about what Charlie read for us just a moment ago, and for the sake of time, we won't reread it, but you think about what Isaiah is talking about there in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9, and the description, the depiction that he gives of a nation, a group of people who have fallen so far and so deep away from Almighty God. Words, a description there in Isaiah chapter 1 that I certainly don't want to describe me. Words I know that you don't want to describe you. And yet at times in our lives, times where perhaps these words do describe us when we are living lives that are contrary to the message of the gospel. Words that very well depict our world and the state in which it finds itself. And yet despite all of that, despite the sickness that our world is in, despite the sickness that maybe even we at times also find ourselves in, there is an antidote, isn't there? There is something that saves us from this, and it doesn't matter how far one might have fallen. It doesn't matter how far one might have gone astray from the fold of Almighty God. It doesn't matter what sin has been committed. He or she has a path that is laid before them that if faithfully walked on, it will take them back into a relationship with God. And I want to make sure that this is stressed before we move into the topic of what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to make sure that you understand this, that if you have committed sin in your life, as you and I understand that every single person has, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 tells us that, and you must understand, every single person must understand that if it is your desire to come back to God, just as it is his desire for you to come into his fold, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, that that is entirely and completely possible. That has been made accessible to you by the very blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary for us, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. However, you and I must have a very clear, crystal clear understanding of the devastating nature of sin, the, the physical effects, the spiritual effects that sin has on every single person that lives their life within that. And more importantly, the havoc that it will wreck on their lives and on the lives of those around them. LGBTQIA+. IA was added in the year 2021 for what they said, more inclusivity. What an acronym, right? What a quote-unquote community that has been created for people who claim to be living this kind of lifestyle. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, intersex, and asexual or agender. Where do we even begin? 
Where, where do you and I even begin to take a walk through a topic, through a subject like this? Certainly it is a subject that is pertinent. Certainly it is everywhere that you and I look around in our lives. We understand that this is an agenda that is being pushed by Hollywood. We understand it is being pushed by our governments, by our school systems. Unfortunately, we know that it is being pushed in some homes by parents and by grandparents. It is in our media. It is in our movies. It is in our music. Simply put, it is in our entertainment. We understand that this is every single place of our lives. In the year of 1999, it was the month of June that President Bill Clinton was the first one to declare June as what he called Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. Ten years later, in June of 2009, President Barack Obama declared June as an abbreviated version of that, LGBT Pride Month. And then uh, 12 years later, in June of 2021, it was President Joe Biden who declared June as LGBTQ Pride Month. We understand very clearly that it is literally everywhere that we look, isn't it? It is being shoved and it is being forced into our lives, into our education, and into our entertainment. And at times, for you and I as Christians, it can seem like there is absolutely nothing that we can do. At times, it can seem like we have nowhere to run. At times, it can seem like we have nowhere to go, that we are living amidst a generation that certainly knows not God and that there is seemingly no hope for us. So what do we do about it? What do you and I do as it pertains to the Lord's church, as it pertains to you and I as New Testament Christians and the way that we are to respond to a group of people like this, to a community, to a movement, to an agenda like this that is being pushed on a very daily basis. I will say this, and maybe you, you may disagree with, with, with me on this, but we can talk about that later. But I will say this, I do think that the Lord's church overall has failed. I think the Lord's church overall has failed as it concerns to the way that we react, respond, and ha handle matters like what we're talking about this morning. Because it seems, at least from my perspective and at least my experience, that there really is no middle ground with this. That either you and I, and I say you and I generally, either we as Christians, we tend to sweep perhaps an issue like this under the rug. And maybe we just hope that if we don't see it, or we don't look at it, or we don't talk about it, then it just goes away. And then we don't have to concern or worry ourselves about a movement like this. Or we flip the coin. And we respond with hatred, with anger, with distaste and abhorrence, certainly towards the act of homosexuality, towards the sin itself, and that is necessary, but we also tend to react that way to the person who is also committing the sin. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, both reactions are wrong. Both reactions are sinful. And both reactions will find each one of us standing on the wrong side of Almighty God on the day of judgment, right next to the homosexual that we are showcasing that attitude towards. So what do we do? How do we respond to something like this? This is an assignment of mine to cover um, this weekend, actually at Polishing the Pulpit. And so I have a very specific lane uh, that I have to stay in and on a topic like this. And so I know that you know, any one of us could stand up here and talk about this, and there's a lot of different directions. There's a lot of facets that we could go and that we could talk about. Time just won't permit me to do that. And so there's a very specific lane. There's a lot of things I've had to leave out uh, on this particular lesson. I just want you to understand that, but there's a very specific way that I have to go with this. The first thing I want to talk about, though, is this. I want you to understand how in the world we got here. How did we get here 
to the point that we are at? And really, what a great question, right? How on earth has this happened? How on earth, why in the world are you and I even having to have a lesson like this? How, how, why are we having to address a subject as serious as this, having a discussion about this? Isn't it interesting that things like this, they don't just pop up overnight, do they? That they don't just happen and just perhaps pop out of the blue and suddenly we have this huge issue with this problem that we're facing. It's interesting that this particular movement uh, this quote-unquote movement, this subject that we're talking about has really been on the move for quite some time, but it hasn't actually always been like this. I want you to hop into a time machine with me, and we're going to walk ourselves through history for just a couple of moments to get to the point to where we are now, but I actually want you to go back to the year 1776, the year that we declared our independence from Great Britain. According to the Digital Commons, University of Nebraska, there was a quote that said this, for several hundred years, um, America was to serve as a haven for minorities threatened with religious or political persecution in other lands. But notice this, what then did it offer the homosexual? Not assured the liberty or the pursuit of happiness. Indeed, it appears that in 1776, male homosexuals in the original 13 colonies were universally subject to the death penalty. And that in earlier times, for a brief period in one colony, lesbians had been liable to the same punishment for relations with other women, even in British common law. According to Sir William Blackstone, a British attorney, jurist, law professor, political philosopher, and author, in fact, this individual had a great deal of influence on our founding fathers and the way that they first tried to set up our country and the way that they were going to run it. But notice what he said. He said, what I have observed, which ought to be the more clear in proportion as the crime is the more detestable, uh, may be applied in another offense of a still deeper malignity or that which is evil in nature. The infamous, notice what he says, crime against nature committed either with man or beast, the very mention of which is a disgrace to human nature. This, the voice of nature and of reason and the express law of God determined to be capital. And our ancient law in some degree imitated this punishment by commanded such miscreants or someone who breaks the law to notice what he says should happen to them, to be burnt to death, to be buried alive, or to be hung. How about George Washington, General George Washington, when he found out that there was a man who was trying to commit sodomy or homosexuality uh, with another man in the army, issuing general orders from army headquarters at Valley Forge on Saturday, March 14, 1778. At a general court-martial, Lieutenant Insulin of Colonel Malcolm's regiment tried for attempting to commit sodomy with John Monhort, a soldier. Secondly, for perjury and swearing to false accounts, found guilty of the charges exhibited against him, being breaches of 5th Article 18th section of the Articles of War, and do sentence him to be dismissed the service with infamy, being well known for something bad. Notice what it says. His Excellency, the Commander-in-Chief, approves the sentence with abhorrence and detestation of such infamous crimes orders Lieutenant Enslin to be drummed out of the camp tomorrow morning by all drummers and fifers in the army never to return. Homosexuality, sodomy was treated as a criminal offense by all 13 original colonies and eventually actually by all 50 states. Was it looked down to on to be a homosexual and, or in favor of those who were engaged in homosexuality. Absolutely it was. And really even going for the next 100 years, this was the attitude. This was the viewpoint of people who lived in our country. And it was seen as something that was vulgar. 
It was seen as something that was disgusting, as immoral, as wicked, something as which one ought not to partake in or to ever do. And if you were involved in it, there was great punishment. There were great consequences, and obviously in some cases, there was death. It wasn't really until the 19th century that things began to change. In 1924 was the first known LGBTQ plus rights organization. The quote-unquote Society for Human Rights was founded by Henry uh, Gerber. 1969, June 28th, many of you probably recognize this date, the Stonewall Riots took place in New York City following the police raid of the Stonewall Inn, which was a gay bar. 1970, the first Pride Parade takes place commemorating the Stonewall Riots. 1971, Philip Carey played the first openly gay character named Steve in the show All in the Family. 1973, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from its list of mental disorders. 1973, the first openly gay person was elected to Congress. 1979, this was interesting, Reverend, quote-unquote, John Cooper, who was a part of a community church, and his quote-unquote husband became the first gay couple to adopt a child. Let me quickly give you a timeline of the 21st century. There's several more things we could talk about, but notice some of these. The year 2000, Vermont became the first United States, uh, or the U.S. state to legalize civil unions, granting same-sex, quote-unquote, couples legal recognition. 2003, Lawrence v. Texas, the Supreme Court struck down sodomy laws in the United States, decriminalizing consensual same-sex activity nationwide. 2004, Massachusetts became the first U.S. state to legalize, quote-unquote, same-sex marriage. 2009, President Barack Obama signed Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act into law, extending federal hate crime protections to include sexual orientation and gender identity. 2010, Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy is repealed, which ironically was put into place when Bill Clinton was in office. But this was repealed, allowing LGBTQ individuals to serve openly in the military. And the DADT policy has stood since, that had stood since 1994. 2013, Supreme Court ruled in U.S. v. Windsor striking down the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined what marriage was, that between a man and a woman. And then in 2015, in a 5-4 to victory, the U.S. Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage nationwide with the hit of a gavel. Just as Anthony Kennedy said in 2015, No longer may this liberty be denied. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than they once were. And he's exactly right, isn't he? He's exactly right, talking about what marriage can do for two individuals, how it can make them stronger so long as they are in a good standing with Almighty God, that being them being man and woman, creating what God has blessed. I want to take you back to 1987 for just a moment. Consider what was written by Michael Swift, who printed uh, this, what is called the Homosexual Manifesto. It was written for what was called at that time the Gay Community News, and I encourage you to go read it. You can Google it, and you can read it on your own. It took me probably seven minutes to read it. It's pretty short. Um, and I can't read some of the things that were in it um, for you, but I did put a couple of excerpts on the screen, and I want you to think about some of the things that were said. Uh, some of the things from this particular, what is called the Homosexual Manifesto, says this, We shall sodomize your sons, 
emblems of your feeble masculinity, of your shallow dreams and vulgar lies. We shall seduce them in your schools, in your dormitories, in your gymnasiums, in your locker rooms, in your sports arenas, in your seminaries, in your youth groups, in your movie theater bathrooms, in your army bunkhouses, in your truck stops, in your houses of Congress, wherever men are with men together. Your sons shall become minions and do our bidding. They, notice this, they will be recast in our image. All laws banning homosexual activity will be revoked. The family unit spawning grounds of lies, betrayals, mediocrity, hypocrisy, and violence will be abolished. Notice this, the family unit, which only dampens imagination and curbs free will, must be eliminated. All churches who condemn us will be closed. Only are our only gods are handsome young men. It's hard to put into words, isn't it, to try to describe something like this, to try to make a statement after you read something like this, how far off and how far away from what Almighty God has put into place and his design for mankind, and, and they know it too. They know exactly what they're saying. If you continue reading in that homosexual manifesto, they talk about some of the things, how marriage is designed and specifically what it's for. They understand what they're doing. They know exactly what it is that they're talking about. They know the intent of marriage and what it's supposed to look like, but they don't care because it doesn't fulfill their fleshly lusts and their fleshly desires. How about this? The, according to the American Humanist Association, whose tagline, read this, good without a God, advocating progressive values and equality for humanist atheists, and free thinkers. We strive to bring about a progressive society where being good without a God is an accepted and respected way to live life. We are accomplishing this through our defense of civil liberties and secular governance by our outreach to the growing number of people without traditional religious faith and through a continued refinement and advancement of the humanist world view. Now, humanism, I don't know if you know what humanism is, but if you didn't already know, it is essentially this philosophical stance or viewpoint that essentially rejects God as divine. And what it does is it places all importance, all worth, and, and dignity solely upon the individual itself with no regard for God whatsoever. Collins Dictionary, the humanism definition according to what they said the American English. Any system or thought or action based on the nature, interests, and ideals of humanity. A modern non-theistic rationalist movement that holds that humanity is capable of self-fulfillment, ethical conduct without recourse, the idea of help, to supernaturalism. Okay, the idea that you and I can live, that we can breathe, that we can simply be on our own without the help of a higher power or a higher being. I guess they haven't read the Bible, have they? Passages like Psalm chapter 55 and verse 22 ring so loud in my mind where the psalmist said, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall do what? sustain you. What does that mean? He's going to strengthen you. He's going to support you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. What about Psalm 76 and verse 26? My flesh and my heart fail, but who is the strength of my heart and my portion forever? Almighty God. How about Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2? Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for Yah, a shortened version of Yahweh, that which is self-existent, the eternal, talking about Jehovah God, the Lord is my strength and song. 
He has become my salvation. Isaiah 41 and verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. 1933, Humanist Manifesto 1 was drafted by men like John Dewey, Curtis Reese, and Charles Francis Potter. And I actually pulled this from Brother Jason Rollo's manuscript from the Truth and Love Lectureship in Pulaski from this past year, and notice what this says. We are convinced that the time has passed for theism. This was back in 1933. The distinction between the sacred and the secular can no longer be maintained. Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and, full and fulfillment in the here and now. Now, fast forward 40 years later, 1973, Humanist Manifesto 2, notice what it says. Humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous, or in other words, that which is self-governed or governed by yourself. It is, ethics is autonomous and situational. Ethics stem from human need and interest. We strive for the good life here and now. The many varieties of sexual exploration should not in themselves be considered evil, short of harming others or compelling them to do likewise, Individuals should be permitted to express their sexual desires and pursue the lifestyle as they desire. In 2003, a third Humanist Manifesto came out, which has similar phrases and ideologies scattered all throughout it as well. You want to know why we have gotten to this point, or maybe I should say how, how we have gotten to this point. It hasn't happened overnight, I can promise you that. This is something that has happened not even in the last decade, but over the past 100 years, give or take, this is something that has slowly but surely been coming to the surface with its prevalence and its provocativeness for the last 100 years, and our society, unfortunately, has bought it hook, line, and sinker. Think about what it's doing to our children. Here's some books that came off of a website, books that were... Uh, that the website said, these are books that are great for introducing your children to LGBTQ. Here's a book written by Sophie Beer. It's called Love Makes a Family. And the description is, this book, that it, this book shows rather that it doesn't matter what your family looks like. The only thing that makes a family a family is love. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it's not love that they're talking about, is it? What are they talking about? There's a very big difference between the words love and the word lust, aren't there? Because you and I understand they're not talking about what true love is. You and I understand that, and I think about this, it doesn't make any sense. Because in their minds, they're all about love, aren't they? They preach love. They say, you have to love everyone and love this and love that. And our world needs more love. And true, it does. But here's the problem. They are trying to solve an agape problem with an eros or a sexual kind of love. And it doesn't work when you do that. They don't understand what true biblical love looks like. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'll read you verse 19 and verse, uh, verse 20. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. How do I choose life? What do I need to do in order to gain life? Continue reading verse 30. That you may love the Lord your God. All right, great. I have to love God, but what does that entail? That you may obey his voice. 
and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them. Brothers and sisters, real, true love is obeying the commandments and the voice of Almighty God. And it is not giving in to my own fleshly lusts and desires. Here's another book written in 2019 by Michael uh, Justin. I guess is how you pronounce his last name. My Two Moms and Me. This sweet board book features a diverse array of families with lesbian mothers going about their daily routines, including playdates, pool dates, and bedtime reading. How about this one written by Leslie Newman? 2008, Daddy, Papa, and Me. A heartwarming board book about gay parents. A, a great purchase, notice this, a great purchase for new parents and new babies alike. And the perfect gift to shower your love for daddy, papa, and more. Here's another one, Louis Stoll, 2022, ABC Pride. A vibrant and inclusive first ABC book that introduces readers ages three and up to pride. Children can discover letters and words in a fun and engaging way while also learning more about the LGBTQIA plus community and how to be inclusive. And then this one, Joanna McClintock, 2022, Twas the Night Before Pride. Pride in the description, a day that means together we are strong. Discover the history behind Pride Month and how it became nationally recognized. Notice this, young leaders will learn about Stonewall, AIDS, protests, and other significant events. Brothers and sisters, this is five books. Five books out of probably maybe hundreds of thousands that have been written specifically designed with your children in mind. You don't think that grooming is a real issue? You don't think that grooming is happening right before our very eyes? You don't think that this is a pertinent issue? That this is something that maybe we don't need to talk about or that we don't need to discuss? You don't think that there is a war that is being waged on the family, on the home, and on our education? Then you had better open up your eyes. I talked to a high school teacher who's also a coach in the St. Louis area, and he said that they had just finished their training videos for the upcoming year. And this is what he said. He said, it is considered sexual discrimination to speak out against a student or coworker who is transgender. We are to be accommodating to preferred pronouns. And he said, not just that, we are to tolerate, not, we are not just to tolerate it, but we are to respect it. I talked to two other teachers, one south of the St. Louis area, one, and he said the same thing. I talked to a teacher in the Indiana area. She also said the same thing. They talked about libraries, how libraries are pushing hard with this agenda. I talked to somebody else who said they had a relative who was a teacher in the Denver area, and they said that they had to attend monthly meetings by an organization that was considered to be a gay straight alliance. Look, I understand this varies. Okay, I understand that. It varies between district to district. It varies school to school. It varies blue state to red state. It varies teacher to teacher. But don't think for a second that this is not infiltrating our education system, our media, our entertainment, and every single aspect of our lives. This didn't happen overnight. This is something that has been slowly infiltrating and infesting our society for the last 100 years. But isn't it interesting that this progressiveness, this idea is actually talked about in Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13, the Bible says that evil men and imposters will do what? They will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1, the progression of sin blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Our country is in a terrible, 
and horrible place. And God help us help this country in any way that we can. Here's the second thing I want to talk about this. And I think this is very important. We won't spend much time on this, but this is extremely important because it does you and I no good to talk about the sin of homosexuality or to call it a sin if you and I can in no way prove to people that it goes against what God has commanded for us to do in our lives. I want to look at four passages here for just, just for, for a couple of moments before we move on to our last point. Is, is homosexuality a sin? Genesis chapter 1, notice beginning in verse 26. This is the very beginning of the world's existence. God has created everything. On a day six, you and I know that he created mankind. Notice what he says here, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. But then notice the command given to them, verse 28. Then God blessed them. Who is he talking to? The ones he just created, male and female. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice what God does not say in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Notice God does not create two men and tell them to, that, that they were created in his image and to be fruitful and multiply. Notice God does not create two women and say, uh, say that you were created in my image. Now go be fruitful and multiply. Why did he not do that? Well, guess what? They can't do that, can they? They can't go forth and be fruitful and multiply. Man cannot do that with man and be fruitful and multiply. Woman cannot be with woman and be fruitful and multiply. Only man and woman are able to do that, and that is who God created. And that is what God told them to do, to be together from the very beginning of time. Jesus Christ himself actually reiterated this. If you think about what was said in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees were coming to him and they were trying to trip him up um, by talking about and bringing up this idea of divorce. But you notice, and we won't read the whole passage, but notice what he says, beginning of verse four. And he said, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Notice verse six. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, because of that, what God has joined together, let not man separate. A man shall be joined with who? Another man? No, with a woman. A man shall be joined with a woman. They shall become husband and wife. The two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, that which has God's stamp of approval, that which has God's blessing on it, let not man pull apart. How about Genesis chapter 19? Let's go back to the Old Testament for just a moment. Genesis chapter 19, we're talking about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think when people think about them, they just immediately and rightly so, they think about the fire and the brimstone that comes down from the sky that God rained down on them because of their wickedness, because of their horrible way of living. And rightly so. Nobody up to that point, I suppose, had acted so evilly and so wickedly in the way that they had. Because if you go back a few chapters to chapter 13 and verse 13, the Bible describes the wickedness of Sodom and it says that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. They were so wicked and sinful against the Lord. And you get to Genesis chapter 19, you remember reading about an encounter that had uh, that they had with 
uh, with Lot and these two individuals. And to save time, we're not going to read it. But essentially, they had come to the city. Lot had, had seen them. And despite their efforts to try and to go stay in the square of the city, Lot goes to them and says, no, you can't do that. Perhaps being hospitable, sure. But he had their safety in mind. And you and I understand what we're talking about. Notice what he says beginning in, uh, in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 19. Now, before they laid down, the men of the city and men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they were called to Lot, and, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Verse 5, to know them carnally. In the New American Standard, it says that they wanted to have relations with them. Now, a lot of people think that when you look at this passage, they weren't talking about having sexual relations with them, but rather it was more or less just a conversation. They just wanted to talk to them and get to know them. But the word translated there is actually a word that references sodomy. And you can see how you can see that in how they reacted to when Lot told them no. In fact, you can also go to Judges chapter 19 and verse 22. And I encourage you to go read that at a later time. But in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 22, the exact same word is there. When you, when you read that entire account, you are you are left. There's no doubt in your mind of exactly what what is being talked about here. When you think about Sodom, here for the very first time, the nature of their sin and their wickedness that was expressed in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13 is being fully revealed to us as readers. And this is ultimately what led to their destruction. If you continue reading in Genesis chapter 19, the last one I want you to think about here for just a moment is this, Romans chapter one. And I think we've been going over this over the last couple of weeks in our Bible classes, but Romans chapter one, in the first chapter of this particular book, Paul is addressing the very sinful and wicked nature, the behavior of these Gentile individuals. And you notice what he says beginning in verse 24. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. What does he say? Uncleanness, that which would dishonor you. Verse 25. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served. Notice this. Served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. What does this sound like? Worshiping and serving the creature instead of the creator. What did we just talk about? Humanism. Right, The idea of placing value and worth on yourself instead of Almighty God. Verse 26 and verse 27. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in them the, in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. What are we talking about? We're talking about homosexuality. We're talking about sodomy, man with man, woman with woman. That is no Notice how it's described, that which is vile, that which is unnatural, that which is against nature, and that which is shameful. There's so much more we could say about this passage. We just don't have the time. Here are some other passages to consider, and we don't have time to look at all these, to read all of these, but these are ones that I want you to take note of in your own study. Leviticus 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, and both of them have committed an abomination, they shall be surely put to death. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, a reference there to homosexuality and to sodomy. In 
individuals who commit those will not what? Inherit the kingdom of God. First Timothy 1, 8 through 11, sodomy again is referenced. And then in Jude and verse 7, a reference going all the way back to Genesis chapter 19, the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah having gone after, how does he describe it? Strange flesh, that which is homosexuality. Does the Bible say that homosexuality is a sin? Absolutely it does, both Old and New Testament. Does the Bible say that, that it is something that separates one from God and that will send one to eternal damnation? Absolutely it does. Is it something that we as Christians must unapologetically proclaim and live out in our everyday lives 100%? But it begs the question, how do we do it? How do we react? How do we respond? How do we live in a society that is so engulfed and engrossed with this idea? How do we respond? Four things that I think are very important for us to understand. In order to respond in a way that is pleasing to Almighty God, things I think that we should all strive to do better. Number one, how do we respond? We show them the love that God has showed us. God, and I'm not going to spend much time on this. There's two we're going to spend more time on, two we're not going to talk much about at all. We show them the love that God has showed us. God leaves, loves each of us so dearly and so deeply. We know that. John chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved you, the world. Guess who that includes? You, me, and also every single homosexual that is out in our world. He sent his son to die for them, and we need to respond to LGBTQ people with this in mind. We need to tell them, show them, that just as Jesus Christ died for you and for me, Jesus Christ also died for them. Number two, we treat them as any other person living in sin. We treat them as any other person living in sin. I was working with a congregation once, and I heard a member who was, I'm not going to call him a pillar of the congregation. I feel like that's giving him too much credit. But he was very influential uh, in the congregation, and I heard him say something to this effect to someone else. He said, we can't let homosexuals into our buildings and into our worship services. He said, we can't let them come in. And I've racked my brain trying to find some kind of good that maybe he was trying to relate to the person that he was talking about, and I simply can't do it. Because and in knowing who this individual was, I know in his mind, knowing him and who he was, he did not want to have anything to do with someone who was a homosexual. He wasn't going to greet them if they came to worship. He wasn't going to talk to them if they came into the assemblies. He certainly wasn't going to let them sit beside him and attempt to be present in an assembly if they were going to come in. But interestingly enough, his own granddaughter was actually married to someone who was an alcoholic, someone who drank all the time and yet who still came to worship, who still came and was present in the assemblies. And this individual would eat with him. He would sit with him. He would talk with him. He would go places with him. He would sit and worship with him. But to, for him to do that with a homosexual, absolutely not. When I said towards the beginning of this particular lesson that the church has failed in this area, this is exactly what I meant. There are too many members of the Lord's church, brothers and sisters, who are tolerant of alcoholics, fornicators, people who are prideful, people who are arrogant, people who lie, people who use the Lord's name in vain, people, Christians who do any kind of sin. And yet when it comes to homosexuals in their minds, they view them as someone who has committed this unforgivable sin, that they have committed this, this sin and that they are now lost with no, or they are a lost cause. There's no way that they can help them. And we must never even look at them. Brothers and sisters, we must stop being tolerant of any kind of sin that is in our midst whatsoever. 
We need to be like Joshua in Joshua chapter 7, who searched far and wide for the sin that was in their camp, and he found it, and he got rid of it. And how, when it comes to any kind of person who is involved in any kind of sin, alcohol, fornication, pride, whatever it might be, we understand that if even if they are a Christian or even a non-Christian mixed up in that, their eternal destination is going to be the exact same as a person who lives their lives in homosexuality. Furthermore, think about it this way. If you and I were never to communicate, if we were never to talk with or reach out to homosexuals, how do you and I ever expect to help them? How do you and I ever expect to reach them? How do we expect them to change? How do we expect them to find Christ? How did you come to Christ? How did you get to the point to where you are now? Because someone did what? Someone taught you the gospel. What does that require? Someone talking to you. Because someone took time and effort to reach out to you and to teach you about Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 15, beginning of verse 1, the Bible says that all tax collectors and sinners drew near to who? To him. Who's him? Jesus Christ. To hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Brothers and sisters, Jesus ate with sinners. So why can't we? I'm not saying at all be okay with their sin. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. I'm not saying at all go out and become best friends with them and do everything with them. But I am saying that certainly we must be willing and able to talk to them, to form some kind of relationship with them in order to teach them about Jesus Christ. We need to let them know that certainly they can come as they are, but that they cannot stay as they are. We have to show them number three. That forgiveness is completely possible. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through eleven. I referenced that a moment ago. In that list of sins, it mentions homosexuality and sodomy as individuals who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in verse eleven, however, this has got to be one of the most beautiful verses in the entire New Testament. Paul says, "Such were some of you." What is that referencing? The idea of something that was in the past that used to be this way. Such were some of you, but. You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Come at them with an attitude of humbleness and forgiveness because you and I have to very quickly understand that our own sin puts ourselves in the exact same spiritual state as they if you and I had never come into contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the fourth one that I want to talk about. And the last one that will offer the Lord's invitation. Patience is required, but tolerance is forbidden. Patience in that you and I must show them grace and patience as they are growing and as they are maturing in the relationship with Jesus Christ. However, tolerance is forbidden in that we hold their feet to the fire and we keep the pressure on them. I know so many people look at something like this and they say, how unloving, right? How unfair, how horrible, how mean you are to somebody. We talked about the idea of them preaching this message of love, how it's all about love. But I think about a couple of passages in the New Testament. First John chapter 5, where John is talking, he says, for this is the love of God. John, tell me it so plainly. Tell me it so clearly. What is the love of God? That we do what? Keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. He doesn't quit. He goes on to his next book. Second John, verse 6. This is love. John, again, tell me. What is love? 
that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. What is true love? We talked about this earlier. What is real love? It's not the homosexual movement. It's not what they are pushing. It's not what their agenda is pushing, is it? People say, what about Ephesians 4 and verse 15, right? Preach the truth in love. We're supposed to be loving individuals, and we can't be mean to them, and you're right. Preach the truth in love. We must be gracious, compassionate, patience like we're talking about. We have to have patience with these people, but people seem to have this mixed up and skewed view that preaching the truth in love means we can't offend anybody. That is to say that we can only be kind, that we can only be tolerant and accepting and anything goes. And if we say otherwise, we are automatically not loving brothers and sisters. That's not what Ephesians 4 and verse 15 is talking about. Speaking the truth in what? Agape. Not eros, agape love, unconditional love, a love that is going to do what is best for them. Again, they're trying to fix an agape problem with an eros kind of love. If they were to abide in true love, in true agape love, according to 1 John and 2 John, what would they be doing? They would be obeying the commands of God, which involves what? Putting off homosexuality and sodomy. Go back to the passage we referenced just a moment ago. Harsh? Yeah, maybe. It may be harsh in the way that we say it. But I say all of that because while we need to have patience with people, while we need to have grace with people, as they are striving to get their lives right, it does not mean at all that we tolerate them continuing to live a life that is full of sin as they are, quote-unquote, trying to figure things out. Grace and patience must be present as they, uh, as they live their lives, just as it is present to us, shown to us by God, understanding that they're not going to be perfect, understanding uh, that they are striving to rid the sin that is in their lives, but holding their feet to the fire, putting continued pressure on them, in that we remind them that they need to continue to live for Jesus and what all is involved for that. There's a lot more we could have talked about. There's a lot more to talk about when it, as it pertains to a subject like this, but the, the main crux of this is the way that you and I react and respond to people who live their lives like this. If there is a homosexual, maybe you're here, maybe you're listening, Maybe you, and it's hard-pressed to find any person who doesn't know someone who is a homosexual or who deals with homosexuality. There are five things. I'm I'm just going to read them. I'm not going to, don't worry, we're almost done. I'm going to say them real quickly, okay? But there are five things that I think you need to relay to every single person who is a homosexual. Here's the first one. You need to relate to them that God loves you. We talked about this a moment ago. You need to show them and tell them that God loves loves them, that it doesn't matter what they have done, how far they may have fallen away from him, God loves them. Number two, you need to tell them that Jesus died for them. We talked about that a moment ago, that just as Jesus Christ died for every single person in this world, that they as a homosexual are also included in that. Number three, you need to tell them that they are free to make whatever choices they want. They have free will. That's the beauty of the lives of which we live. We can live our lives however we want, but You're not free to choose your own consequences, are you? There are consequences to your actions, and they need to understand that. Number four, they need to understand that the cost of following Christ is going to be high. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require commitment. It's going to them giving up things in their lives that they used to be so wholly and completely engrossed in. But all of those things are done away. They're all put away because of of them following after Christ. But then number five, the cost of of not following after Christ is even higher. And they need to understand that. 
They need to understand that if they put all of this away and they don't go towards Christ, they're going to pay a much bigger cost and a much bigger price. This is an issue, brothers and sisters, that our country is facing. It is an issue that our world is facing, our families are facing, and unfortunately, even the Lord's church is facing it. And if you don't believe that, then you're simply lying to yourself. No one has the power, has the right, has the ability to take marriage and to try to, quote-unquote, redefine what it looks like. No leader, no president, no king, no queen, no justice, no court of law can redefine what marriage looks like. Only God is the one who can define what marriage ought to look like. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and then two shall become one flesh. Don't miss verse 6. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Maybe you're here this morning and perhaps you are someone who has been struggling with this, but maybe you want to give your life over to Christ. Maybe you've been struggling with any kind of sin, whatever it might be in your life, you understand that that is something that separates you from God. But maybe you want to put that away. Maybe you want to come to him, submit your life to him through baptism, know that we can do that this morning. We can baptize you water, that water representing Jesus' blood, washing your sins away. You can go on your way rejoicing. Maybe you're here though, perhaps you are a Christian and maybe there's something in your life that's not right. Maybe you're struggling with something that we talked about this morning. No that there is help for you. There is hope for you and that you can get through it and whatever it is that it might be. You can come forward, repent of those things. We'll pray for you. We will forgive you. God will forgive you. Or maybe you're here and maybe you want to study more about these things. Please, please don't walk out of here feeling that you are unloved, that you are unseen and that you are unvaluable or invaluable. You certainly are all of those things. We love you and we want to help you. If you have a need this morning, won't you come? It's together we stand and as we sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you would like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.